Welcome to another episode of Bereans Podcast. Each week we share a message from the Bible and examine it to understand and learn to apply it to our lives. The hope is that through the wisdom of the scriptures, we will all be encouraged to make real life change and that the power of the gospel will transform our lives. Thanks for listening and enjoy this episode of the Berean Podcast that starts right now. friends. My name is Brent, and I'm one of the pastors here at Berean. My area of engagement is pastoral care and uh, also senior adult ministries. And it's always nice to be able to have an opportunity to preach, and Devin gave us the opportunity to pick whatever topic you want to, and so I'm very happy to do that. Um, It's hard for me to kind of grasp that we're here in the middle of July, and um, summer, maybe you consider it halfway over. But one thing that I haven't really enjoyed yet this summer is my love for those midsummer thunderstorms. Do you like those? When you kind of see it coming in the west and the storms get darker and darker and then all of a sudden you hear the little bit of rumble and then it gets closer, then the big rumbles and then the lightning strikes and then the rain comes pouring down maybe for only 20 minutes and then it blows on by but i love the power of the thunderstorm i did a little bit of reading about thunderstorms and you need three things here in minnesota in the middle of summer to get a thunderstorm you need to have moisture that's uh there in the atmosphere you need to have what's called lift and you also need to have uh, instability in the air a lot of cold fronts and warm fronts and all of that. And if you have all of those things, the weatherman might say in the forecast, uh, here's the prediction, but their conditions are ripe for thunderstorms and perhaps even severe thunderstorms. There's one more element, and that's wind. And when it really blows in hard and fast, then you have a severe thunderstorm. I like the moderate kinds. You know, I can just say, give me a a 20-minute thunderburst, and that's all I need. But uh, we don't get a pick, do we? So today, we're going to talk about the storms of life. And I'm going to take a story from the Gospel of Mark and then try to apply it to our lives of how you and I can make our way through the storms of life. I'm going from the Gospel of Mark. Tanner already mentioned the fact that I selected a story that is also going to be told in VBS, so you see if I tell it very well, and then the kids can study it again when they come back next week. But the whole idea of the Gospel of Mark is that there are two halves, 16 chapters in the complete. In the first eight, you have a story of Jesus coming, 
And with great power and miracles and powerful teaching, he draws huge crowds and they're always following him. And then the second half, you have Jesus spending more time with his disciples and then preparing for his time in Jerusalem and then ultimately the cross. And right in the middle, you have the story of Peter making that great confession, saying, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And then the next chapter, chapter 9, you have the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus was seen in all of his glory by three of the disciples. So in that first half of the Gospel of Mark, I'm taking out one story, the story of Jesus walking on the water. It's found in chapter 6. And in that chapter... It begins with Jesus going back to his hometown of Nazareth and quite honestly didn't receive a a warm welcome. People were wondering, who exactly is this guy and who does he think he is? And then after that, Jesus sent the 12 out on a mission and said, I want you to go into the villages and surrounding areas and proclaim the good news that I've been sharing. And he also gave them authority so that they could perform miracles and also cast out demons. When they came back, Jesus said, let's go off and debrief and have a little quiet time. And they went away, but the crowds followed them. And the story then turns to Jesus looking at a crowd of over 5,000 people, saying to the disciples, how are we going to feed these people? The disciples were pretty pragmatic and said, we can't. Tell them to go home and go back to their villages. But Jesus tested them. He said, well, what do we have? Here's one little lunch with a few loaves, five loaves of bread, two fish. And Jesus performed a miracle and multiplied that food so that everyone had all they wanted and there were 12 baskets left over. Immediately after that, we have the story that we're going to talk about today. So if you're able, please stand with me and we're going to read responsibly Mark chapter 6, beginning with verse 45 and go to verse 52. I'll read the first verse, and then you read the second one, okay? Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart. It is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Whenever a preacher has the incredible privilege of preaching, there's just so much that I'd like to say, but I'm just going to say a few things in context for this story. First of all, let's just say it out loud. The miracle of walking on the water. Can you really believe that? 
I mean, seriously, we live in the 21st century. We are scientific and we're empirical and we want proof. And I have never, ever heard of anyone walking on the water. Don't you think maybe it's mythological? It's kind of legendary? A lot of Bible critics over the last couple of centuries have said that. And they think that this is not really historically accurate. And they say that they've never seen or heard about people walking on the water, so they talk about this story in mythological terms. And as a young student many years ago studying the Word, I had to make a decision of what do I personally say about miracles? Do I go with the Scriptures and the centuries of traditions, or do I kind of listen to the scientifically educated people of my century. And uh, after I went back and forth and I read quite a bit, I came to a very simple conclusion. If I give up on miracles, I've got to find another job. Because the Christian faith is centered in one great big miracle, and that was Jesus died on a cross, he was buried in a tomb, and three days later he rose from the grave. And that is the foundation of our Christian faith. And if you take away miracles, I got nothing. I got nothing to say. So, folks, maybe you might call it simple job security, but I'm going with miracles. Okay, But it's also interesting, philosophically, It is very hard for a person to say that they can disprove miracles. And so we go by faith, and that's what faith is all about. We don't always have the opportunity to see things, but we take it on faith. That's the first thing I want to say. The second thing is the Sea of Galilee. You know, we live here in Minnesota, the land of 10,000 lakes. Uh, I think we actually have 11,000 or something like that. But, you know, we're kind of proud of, we're used to the water If we took the Sea of Galilee and transported it into Minnesota, where would it come in the list of our 10,000 lakes as far as size? And I'm thinking in terms of lakes that are inside the boundaries, not Lake Superior, not Lake of the Woods. Where would it come? Number five, okay, just so you know. There's two big lakes up north called Red Lake, and then there's uh, Winnebagoshish, something like that, and then there's uh, Mille Lacs, And then you would have Sea of Galilee. Actually, the Sea of Galilee is 8 miles wide, 13 miles from top to bottom. And if you look at that, it's about one-third the size of Mille Lacs. So for those of you that like to be on the water, that's what we're talking about, where this story took place. Okay. Now, the third thing, (laughs) this story. There's a couple of words, and... uh, Somebody preached this sermon a few years back and helped me to see some of these things. I can't take credit for it. But the very beginning of the story, it said Jesus made the disciples get in the boat. Just think for a second. He made them. He compelled them. You might even say he forced them to get in the boat. I can kind of act the story out in my brain and say, Peter might say, hey, Jesus, you know me. I'm your right-hand man. The other guys can get in the boat, but I'm sticking with you while you dismiss the crowd. And Jesus said, Peter, get in the stinking boat. And Peter said, really, you don't need me? And Jesus said, I'm going to take care of the crowd. You get in the boat, go to Bethsaida. So he gets in the boat. He's sitting there, and he's kind of mumbling to himself, thinking Jesus just doesn't know how important I am. 
And he starts rowing. <clears throat> starts rowing across the Sea of Galilee, and he's sitting there muttering to himself. And it is a nice night, so at least we get to enjoy the night. But then all of a sudden, the wind started to blow. Oh, boy. Oh, it's not too bad. Just a little bit of a headwind. It kind of cools things off, and so it makes it easier to row and to row and to row. But then all of a sudden, the wind picked up, and it says that they were making headway painfully. Step two, step three, boom. Whoa, the boat's starting to rock a little bit. A little bit of water's coming over the bow, and they're sitting there, and now they're really mumbling, saying, why are we doing this? Why aren't we back on the land with Jesus? And they said, he told us to go across and beat him on the other side. So they're rowing and they're rowing. And there's one more part of the story that you don't understand unless you know biblical studies. And that is the fourth watch of the night is somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m. And they started about 7 p.m. <laughs> How many hours were they rowing? They were sitting there. I'm thinking, okay, what does your watch say? We've been doing this now for five hours. Keep going, keep going. We've been doing this for six hours, seven hours, eight hours. And then finally, they look and they, ah, they're all scared and they think it's a ghost. They're not sure. And then Jesus walks up to them on the water and says, it is I. (laughs) Fear not. Don't be afraid. And then he climbed into the boat and the sea just went. Just like that. Back to zero. And then it says they were at the shore and they went on with their day. Life storms are what I'm here to talk about today. And sometimes, as we think about life storms, we don't always know exactly why they show up. We don't always know how long they're going to take. But I'm going to give you a storm survival strategy today to help you manage life's storms. Let me talk a little bit about it. There are different kinds of storms. There are some storms in life that I call consequential. You do certain things here in this stage of your life, and then later on, you're over here and you're saying, hey, I don't like this. You might say on that side over here, A guy poured all of his time into his hobbies, into his sports, and into his job. And then he's over here at this stage of his life, and he's saying, I don't have any friends. I'm lonely. And doctors are now saying that loneliness is an epidemic here in modern-day America. I don't have anyone to hang out with. Well, you know what? It's a consequence because of choices you made over there. I'm sorry you're in this storm, but you might take some responsibility for where you're at right now. That's consequential. There are other storms that we might call anticipated. Every day I get a little bit older. Every year I get a little bit older. And you know, someday I'm going to retire. It kind of scares me a little bit. But if I am actively thinking about here and this time, what's going to be over here I can mitigate the change and sometimes the the depression that goes with, I got no job, I got nothing to get up for in the morning, I don't know what I'm doing with life. But if you anticipate it, you can mitigate this change of life. So there are ways in which we can anticipate storms, but then there are storms, and I just call them out of the blue. You don't see it coming, you don't know why it's there, 
but all of a sudden your life is upside down. I got an email from a lady just the other day, and uh, I was privileged to do what's called prepare and rich before they got married some years back. It was a second marriage for both of them. And it was a beautiful time of helping them to prepare for this big time in their life. And then she told me that on May 31st, her husband was diagnosed with esophageal cancer, and he died on July 7th. Unbelievable. You don't even see that coming. You don't have any time to prepare. Your world is all of a sudden upside down. And it's in those kinds of storms that I'm primarily thinking, how do we get through those storms of life? Storms that can be physical or health-related. They can be relational. They can be vocational or financial. You can name the storm, but we all have them. And today, I'm going to try to give us a way in which we can get through the storms of life. The first one is very simple. This is going to be very brief. Let me just get right to the point. It's called foresight. (laughs) Uh, because I like three-point sermons and I like to alliterate, I had to find a word that started with the letter F. And so I was going to use wisdom, but wisdom starts with W. So foresight is a very good word. It says you think down the road, you look a little bit ahead so that you can be planning for and preparing for the future. Foresight is simple wisdom. Jesus taught his disciples a very simple truth, but it's so powerful. He said... There were two men who built. One built his house upon the rock. The other man built his house upon the sand. And when the rain came down and the floods came up, what happened? The house built on the sand went down the river and the house on the rock stood firm. That's called foresight. (laughs) Building and preparing so that when life storms come, you are prepared for them. Secondly, The Apostle Paul said in the book of Galatians, you reap what you sow. That is a very, very basic principle. But friends, if we live and we choose and we make decisions here at this stage of our life, we have to expect that something's going to be coming down the road and we are going to then reap what we sowed over there. If you sow the things of the Spirit there, then you will reap things of the Spirit. If you sow things to the flesh there, you reap things of the flesh here. And so you have that very basic principle. And for those of you that like other kinds of stories, our culture is filled with stories of wisdom and foresight. The one that came to my mind was the three little pigs. If... The big bad wolf comes, and he huffs, and he puffs, and he tries to blow your house down. Which house should you have? The house made with bricks. Because those who build with straw and with wood, the house goes flat, and then you are there vulnerable before the big bad wolf. Now, all of these things point to the fact of foresight. So, let me just put it as plainly as I can. Please be foresightful. Please don't be stupid. Don't think that somehow you can beat the clock. Now the second thing, and this is the heart of my message, and this is where I have all kinds of scriptures to help us to understand what do we believe, what are the elements, the basic elements of the Christian faith. 
Not only is faith a verb, but it's also a noun. What do I have here in my head? My understanding of God. My understanding of myself. How do I relate to God? How do I, I be in that relationship of him as my Savior and me as his, the one that he has been saved? He is my Father and I am the Son. We have all of these different facts that we have in the Christian faith. And there are a couple of verses that I've been studying and reflecting on. And I want to share them with you today. First of all, James. James, the epistle towards the end of the New Testament. He writes this right at the very beginning of his letter. James chapter 1, verses 2, 3, and 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, and I would include sisters as well, When you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I have to tell you that I am perfectly human and I don't always count it joy when I'm in the midst of trials. Just to maybe call it a confession. So if you say, oh boy, that's almost impossible to, to, uh, to obey, I think it can be difficult, but I want you to have the understanding of the second part. How can you count it joy when you're going through testings and trials? Because you know a fact of the Christian faith is, is that that will then produce steadfastness, perseverance, endurance, That'll help you to be more the kind of person that God wants you to be. And as one of the hymn writers said years ago in the the song, How Firm a Foundation, in the trials, in the fiery times, God wants to consume our dross, that's the bad stuff, and he wants to purify our gold. And so the hard times of life are the times when actually we become stronger and more of a person that God wants us to be. We know that. And so that is what we call the sovereignty of God. And if you say, I trust God to give me my salvation, I put my hands in his hands for my eternal life, can you also trust him in the midst of this particular storm that you're in right now? And if you have trouble trusting him in the storm, then you've got to say, do I really understand the Christian faith? Because I said yes to him. I repented of my sins and I put my faith in him for salvation. Let me put my faith in him, my trust in him for this particular storm. God is going to get me through. Back to the story of the boat. Jesus made them get in the boat. So I would say that he actually had a plan. And Jesus being Jesus, I believe that he knew that in the middle of the night there would be a storm. And I do believe that as he sat there on the mountain and prayed and saw them, he didn't just go rushing out, but he waited until the fourth watch of the night, and then he showed up, and then he rescued them. All of us could say, well, what's wrong with the first watch of the night? Why did you wait to the fourth watch? Folks, that's where I have to back off and say, he's God and I'm not. He knows. And I need to learn to trust him, that he does know, and that he will rescue. One of the questions that I need to always ask myself, I would encourage you to ask yourself, is how can God strengthen me through this particular trial? 
It is so easy, and it's a sign of immaturity, if when we're in a trial, we look around and we blame somebody else. It's their fault. They did this, and now all of a sudden, I'm bearing the consequence. I'm, yeah, 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 yeah. Stop blaming everyone else and start looking inward and say, what does God want to do in my life? What does he want to burn up? Because it's garbage anyways. And what kind of purification does he want to have take place in my life? As I have that attitude, as I express that faith and that trust in God, saying he's going to be with me, he's going to take care of me, he's going to rescue me, all in his good time, then I am able to start counting it joy. Let me show you another passage of Scripture. It's not found just one place with James, but it's also found with Paul in Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, Paul is talking about what we call the doctrine of justification, how God came down and saved us through his amazing grace. Verse 1 reads like this, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have three things. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The second thing we have is that through him we've obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, this relationship. And third, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. (laughs) I have a positive outlook on the future. Not because of the stock market, not because of the news cycle, but because of the glory of God. I have a hope for the future. Now, I go from that in verse 3, and it should be on the screen, or maybe it was, and now it's back. Okay, here we go. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. I say it again. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love was poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. It's amazing, all of the resources that God has given to us. And so when we go through these trials, even though they're not comfortable, even though they can be extremely painful, and I'm fully aware of that, I have the survival strategy of saying my faith is telling me it's going to be okay. I'm going to make it. And I don't know how, and I don't know the timeline, but my trust is with God. Now, I like charts. Pictures help me to try to describe things that I understand a little bit better. I have a chart here. It's kind of my picture of the, the Christian life. On the bottom, you see my spiritual journey, and those numbers there are the years of my life. And so, going up towards 90. On the left-hand side, we have spiritual maturity. This is all hypothetical. I'm not testing anybody here, but for sake of discussion, am I 20% mature, 40% mature, 60, 80, 100%? I know, you know, that none of us can reach 100% on our own efforts. It's impossible. Because of our sins, we fall short of the glory of God. But the amazing story of God's grace is that he comes down and he pours his righteousness into us when we, the J stands for justification, when we repent and we put our faith in the Lord Jesus, he puts his righteousness into us. 
I stand before God declared not guilty. Why is that? Because of his incredible grace. I can't get any more righteous because of the righteousness that comes from God is 100%. I got all that I need. But we don't just have that one experience of justification. We have B. This is Berean Baptist. Baptism is an outward It's an ordinance. It's something that God told us to do. It is an outward display of an inward faith. And so we are baptized at the beginning of our journey, and then that line, I think it looks green, that's our growth, and that's the doctrine of sanctification. How are we growing and becoming more and more like Jesus Christ? And so we should be growing in righteousness. And this person here, hypothetical, He's growing into his teens and into his 20s, going up and up. He's over the halfway mark there. He's moving up towards 60%. But then he drops off. I'm not sure what exactly happened. Maybe he got distracted. Maybe he got caught up with a relationship or something else that he decided, uh, maybe church isn't quite as important. I don't live out my faith. And then all of a sudden, age 30, what is that? Boom! A storm of life. You can... Put whatever you want there. It can be a vocational or relational or physical health crisis. All of a sudden your life is upside down and you're wondering, what do I do with myself? How do I get through this storm? And then you go back and say, I believe God. I put my faith in him. I was baptized because of an expression of my devotion to him. My sins were washed away. I am now raised from death and brought into life. All of those things are true. Does this work in the midst of life's storms? And then as you gather a hold of your faith, you can either move upward or if you somehow get caught up in the storm, you might have a downward experience. I had a friend a few years ago, we were taking a class together, and we were talking about experiences of, well, sometimes it's called the crucible or the storm or when things get really bad, and she told about a time in her early 20s, she was engaged to be married to a guy that she thought was absolutely the right guy. She was so excited about doing life. They both were people of faith. They took things very seriously. They were preparing themselves for careers and for ways to honor God. And then out of the blue, he broke up with her. She said it was one of the worst times of her life. Uh, I'm, I'm a 20th century guy. I don't know all of these new terms, but I think you call that ghosting now, where he just disappeared and uh, didn't even have the decency to look her in the eye and say, I'm breaking up. Her world, she thought, was over. She went on with life and education and career, and um, she never married. Never married. But 20 years later, her dad sent her a clipping from the paper, the local paper, and that guy had been charged with and convicted with child molestation, being sent to prison. She said, I didn't know it at the time. I didn't know it until 20 years later. But God was protecting me. And what I thought was one of the worst times of my life, God was reaching down and protecting me. 
And that's how we begin to say, I don't always see it, but my faith tells me that God is going to show up and he will rescue me. And in the early Christian church, when people were trying to be living out their life and the Roman Empire said, we're going to squash these people and make them go away. They took them into the Colosseums. They lined them up. They killed them. And they said, you can kill me. But if you kill me, you're ushering me into the presence of God. I call that a win. Made the Romans so stinking mad. How do we get rid of these people? And out of the blood of the martyrs, the church continued to spread all across the Roman Empire. My friends, when you have that kind of faith, you're able to go through the storms of life. Now, there's one more thing. Any guesses? What's my final F? Family? That's a good one. That's a good one. Fellowship. Fellowship. When you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is your father, you got a whole lot of brothers and sisters. And fellowship is hanging out together with people that have that same faith, that same relationship with God. And the lesson here is so simple. When you're going through a storm, friends, don't go it alone. (laughs) Find people. Hang out with people. Be a small group. Be part of an adult Bible fellowship or whatever it is. Men's Men's ministry, women's ministries. Find people and hang out with them. And tell them. Ask for prayer. Get together and say, this is a hard time for me. Don't be this kind of like lone ranger, I can handle anything kind of a guy or gal. But find fellowship. Every time I do a funeral, I use these couple of verses at the beginning. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. It has a kind of a notion of saying, when I've gone through the worst storm of my life and I've gotten to the other side, I look back and see if there's anybody that needs my help. And we have all kinds of ministries here at Berean And I have the privilege of working with two really fine ladies. One of them's name is Kim Rivera, and she's in charge of all of our different support groups. And she helps to organize these groups. And let me just go through them real quickly. There's a group called Grief Share. It's a group that meets together for 13 weeks in a row, either in the fall or in the winter, spring. And they go through a a series of videos, and they talk about the grief that they've experienced, and usually it's the loss of a loved one or oftentimes a spouse. And this year we have three people, Kim, Glow, and Rob, who are leading it starting in September. And the thing that you may not know about them is that they've all lost their spouse in the last 12 to 24 months. They have experienced the dark night of the soul and being so terribly alone but they held on to their faith and they got together with people. They went through grief share and now they're turning around and helping others. There's a group called Divorce Care. There's a guy named Scott and a lady named Rosie. They both experienced the incredible heartbreak of divorce. But God got them through that. Now they are able to help other people walk that difficult path. We have a gal named Dana. She leads a ministry called Merciful Wings. She experienced the loss of a child through miscarriage a couple of times. There are others who have lost infants through stillbirth. 
And she is there, and she says, we gather together to try to give support to those that are in the midst of their crisis. Nehemiah Company, in our society, when there's so much confusion about sexual identity, Nehemiah Company gets together and says, if you have a loved one that's in an LGBTQ relationship and you don't know quite how to relate to them at this time, come with us because we've been walking that path for a number of years. We have addiction recovery community led by Craig and Mary Beth and Barb. We have Solo Sisters, a small group led by Leanne, that's a place where widows can kind of hang out and be together because it is awfully bad to be home alone. And then we have Women's Caregiver Support Group led by a gal named Judy. So many times when a husband is alive but is very incapacitated by health, the lady has to do everything and it can get exasperating. And you need a place to be safe and talk about how you're doing. And then finally, a gal named Erin leads a small group for single moms. Those are all different ways in which people can say, I'm in the worst time of my life. Who can I talk to? And there are people on the ready to be able to walk with you and say, I've been down that path and I want to help you. I just want to be present with you. And then the foundation of everything that I do is Stephen Ministry. I love Stephen Ministry, and I will, I will promote it to the day I die. It's the best equipping that any Christian can ever get to be able to empathize and relate to somebody else that's going through a hard time. And you can do it in a way that is respectful for them, also helpful for them. If you want to receive care, talk to my assistant named Melanie Liljenquist, and she will help get you connected. If you want to give care and you've said, I've been through those storms and I want to talk to people and help them, talk to me because I want to get you in our training class that starts in a couple of months and be better equipped. But all of that is part of that strategy of getting through storms by hanging out together with people in fellowship. So friends, my formula is so simple. I've made it as easy as I can. We need foresight, we need faith, and we need fellowship. And most importantly, you need to know that God is there for you. It says that he will never, ever leave you or forsake you. You've got to believe that. You've got to hold on to that and trust that God will rescue you in your storm of life, just like Jesus rescued the disciples. Let's pray. Lord God, you are a God of grace and mercy. And as we've looked at your word, looked at some stories, looked at some teaching, we want to be able to take that truth, take those concepts, and not only understand them, but then to apply them to our lives. So I know that in a group this size, I got brothers and sisters here today that are in the middle of a storm right now. And they are overwhelmed. And they oftentimes don't know where to go. And I pray, Lord God, that they will find places here within our faith family to be able to help them. But I know, Lord God, that there's a lot of folks here that have walked the journey of faith for a long time. And you want to use them to minister to others, people. And I pray that you will help this body of Christ just become better and better equipped to be ministering here in our community and around the world. Be our strength and be our guide. I pray this in your precious name. Amen. 
And that does it for this episode of the Berean Podcast. All of our ministries at Berean are geared towards the mission of seeing lives transformed by the power of the gospel. If you would like to be connected with our church family or give to the mission of Berean, just jump online to our website at bereanmn.com. Thanks for listening today, and we pray that you are encouraged by today's episode. Be sure to like us on social media, and we'll see you here next time on the Berean Podcast.